want you all to know, I was very tired at the Starbucks lounge of the IMU yesterday. And then the barista started playing Hips Don't Lie by Shakira. I think they were trying to spice up all of our mental breakdowns. And boy, did it work. My name is Mary Jane, and I am so excited to welcome you back to another episode of Her Story. While I have several upcoming episodes to celebrate Black History Month and the Lunar New Year, today we are talking about the infamous Holy Teenage Warlord who turned the tide in the Hundred Years' War against, between France and England, Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, also known as the Maid of Orleans, was born in 1412 in Dromony Bar, France. Another upfront apology about my gross mispronunciation of the French language. Um, if I do ever go missing and you find a baguette at the crime scene, know the French took their revenge and it was justified. The 100 Years' War between France and England began in 1337 and was more like a long series of prolonged conflicts with various, various periods of peace, only to be reunited with new alliances, murder, or invasions. The English wanted claim to the French throne. And at the time of the war, France was the most powerful and wealthy nation in Europe. But not all of France belonged to the French. Way back in the day, William the Conqueror invaded England and became king. And he passed down several French territories to his descendants. When Henry Plantagenet became King Henry II of England in 1154, he was a serious contender for the French crown because he was Duke of Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine, via his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine, a badass in her own right, who was also the king of France's ex-wife. Kind of a power move. But this is a very long way of saying that a hundred years war that was actually a lot longer than a hundred years. Basically, is summed down to this. French kings were being kicked out of favor from their courts by the English. And this movement, in part for the era we're going to be discussing, was led by Queen Isabella, who made a deal to put an English king on the throne over the Valois princes. Their king had, the French king had already gone mad at this point, and most of his sons had been assassinated, so Isabel's power in this new French-English court would be secure. But according to legend, there was a prophecy. Some say it was from Merlin, the famed wizard of King Arthur's court. Others say it rose up from the very region Joan was born in. The prophecy said that the France would be lost by a woman and rescued by a virgin. Everyone started to suspect, okay, Isabella was obviously the person who lost France, but who was the virgin who was going to recapture it? And here enters Joan. Joan was an illiterate farm girl who was only a teenager. How could she have connections to king or prophecies, and why should it be her? Frankly, because God said so. Joan was receiving visions from St. Michael, St. Catherine of Alexandria, and St. Margaret of Anak, telling her who the true king of France was and that she was destined to lead his armies to victory. Problem was, there was two potential kings of France, the Dauphin Prince Charles, heir to the House of Valois, and the English king, Henry VI. Because the Dauphin had yet to be anointed, the throne was fair game. Joan lived in a territory loyal to the Dauphin, and her village was forced to flee from English forces, because it was on the border of French and English-controlled lands, mostly with the Burgundy. Still, Joan walked to a fort of the Dauphin's troops in May of 19... Of 1429, asking the captain of the guard for an audience to see the Dauphine. When she was turned away, Joan later returned with six men and a potential parade of followers in January, and the captain allowed her audience with the prince. 
It's true, Joan had amassed quite a reputation, with her visions being affirmed by local priests and her quiet piety drawing the admiration of many. By most accounts, Joan eventually stopped menstruating too, which we now know as a sign of potential malnutrition or stress, but in these days it was a holy sign. Prince Charles was in a tough spot, frankly, and he needed to get his act together in order to be confirmed as king, and fast. No one wanted this more than Yolande of Aragon, queen of four kingdoms. She was called this because of her expansive territorial influence via her children's marriage and her own savvy behind-the-scenes politics. In many ways, this is the story of three women, Isabella, who lost France, Joan, who inspired its recapture, and Yolande, who was working behind the scenes the whole time. Yolande's daughter, Marie of Anjou, married the Dauphin in 1422, and Yolande was determined to regain the prince's control of the throne, even resisting the influence of Isabella, who wanted the prince to return to French court as Yolande tried to prepare the future king for his rule and keep him from the madness and murder that claimed his father and brothers. Yolande actually controlled the territory that Joan lived in, an area known for folktales and minstrels, so some suspect that Yolande could actually be the creator of the prophecy. Many came to the Dauphin with claims of visions, but only those who were telling the prince what Yolande wanted him to hear gained entry. When Joan was brought before them and told the prince of his impending victory, Yolande knew she'd found her figurehead. Joan had traveled 11 days through enemy territory and waited another two as Charles and his advisors debated granting her an audience. This was actually the time that she started her famed cross-dressing. Shearing her hair, Joan would wear armor and men's clothing with for the rest of her life throughout her righteous mission. Yolande was a very sly politician, and with her supposed blessing, Joan was brought to the prince and delivered her visions. Because no one felt any pressure with a war going on, Joan was examined by church officials for three weeks to make sure she wasn't a heretic, to know for sure that she was blessed by God. Remember, this is after the Great Schism, in which, at one time, there were three popes, and things got very confusing for everyday Catholics, so heresy is a serious deal. Joan said that the proof of her mission would not come from any examination, but through her victory on the battlefield. She promised to defeat the English at Orleans and drive a clear path to the cathedral in Reims for the Dauphin's crowning. And at that, the officials declared her legitimate. Joan was eventually given an army by the king and even her own squire. She painted her banners with the word and portraits of Christ, and when asked about a sword... Joan declared she would find one in St. de Catherine de Fibon Church. And when they went there, there was actually a sword there. Orleans has been under siege for months. And since October of 1428, it was completely surrounded by the English. This would be Joan's target. Upon her arrival in April, she insisted on waiting for reinforcements. And they waited for weeks until May 4th. Joan apparently sprang out of bed and announced her inspiration that it was time to attack the English. Rousing her troops, they attacked and captured an English fort east of the city. Joan wrote a letter of defiance to the English forces on the 7th, and her men quickly attacked the fort of Les Trolls. Despite being injured, Joan set a high example for her men by quickly returning to the fight, and soon after, the fort was in French hands. The English, despite their many catapults, retreated the next day, though Joan would not pursue because it was a Sunday. Orleans became famed for its use of cannon warfare, something Joan would continue to use all throughout her military campaigns. 
One of the reasons that the French had been losing so early on in the war was because they refused to modernize their armies for so long as the English did. The French liked knights on horseback and the honor of meeting and killing their enemies on the battlefield, so much so that they hated and even sometimes killed their own archers and crossbowmen. So what changed with cannons, which were considered the role of unskilled and poor conscripted soldiers? Well, either because she had a similar upbringing to said poor conscripted soldiers, or because of her sharp instincts, Joan became a master of cannon warfare. At like 16. She was highly skilled at aiming, placing, and picking out targets for her troops, and coordinating these often sneered at weapons into her victory. Quick recap. At 16, Joan got the blessing of a prince to lead his army, mastered artillery warfare, and has now conquered Orleans after months of siege, winning the city only nine days after her arrival. She's probably only 17 or 18 now, just for reference. Despite Joan's urgency at getting the prince crowned, the Dauphin took his sweet time to do so, including processions and proposing new conquests in Normandy. Before he could be coronated, Joan was ordered to sweep the English out of the Lorne River. She and her troops took a town and captured an important bridge, then going on to attack the castle of Buoncy when the English had retreated to it. She made an alliance with a despised French courtier against the king's wishes, and with his help, she recaptured the castle. Joan was, by many standards, a brutal warlord who did not hold back in her conquest. Some reports say she even slaughtered villagers and traitors of the crown without mercy. Joan rooted the English at Pate on June 18, 1429, in a decisive victory, but instead of pushing to recapture Paris, Joan again had to return to the prince and beg him to be coronated. She had to badger Charles relentlessly, and finally, as his army prepared at Gion, Charles sent out the order for his coronation. In this area, Joan's reputation was so powerful that a nearby town, which refused to surrender to her, immediately did so the moment she arrived on their doorstep. Finally, July 17, 1429, Charles was crowned kings at the cathedral in Reims. That day, Joan finally knelt before Charles and called her king for the first time. And she even wrote to the enemy Duke of Burgundy, asking that he swear loyalty to Charles. The king left Reims on the 20th with designs of capturing Paris, but suddenly refused and changed tact entirely. Joan was horrified, knowing the town's loyal to Charles would face English wrath, and wrote to reassure them that they would not be abandoned. When the English assault was soon blocked by the French, Joan and her fellow commanders were hopeful that it meant Charles would finally attack Paris. By this time, Joan was the hero and ideal image of France, and this would go on to continue leading inspirations for their victories. Joan was growing impatient at these minor skirmishes and distracting battles, insisting that the French take Paris and fast. Finally, Joan arrived in Paris and was followed by Charles, who ordered the attack the next day on September 8th, as the French mounted their defenses. The siege was vicious. Joan stood on the trenches and tried to rally her forces, but was soon after injured, and the next day, at her defiance, Charles ordered the retreat. The army was disbanded at Gion, and Joan remained with the king. Despite his commander's requests, Charles and his courtiers denied Joan the ability to fight at Normandy. Instead, she traveled with him to Bourguignons and the rest of the region, where she is still today remembered for her generosity and kindness towards the poor. Joan returned to the battlefield in October, but her supplies and men were limited and the sieges were brutal. When she finally returned to Charles after being forced to retreat, he issued a 
an edict in December, making Joan and her family nobility, which is cool. Joan was undoubtedly a hero. Once, she took only a few men, including her brother and her squire, just to ride into an enemy town, and her mere presence alone made the people declare Charles their king. Literally, he doesn't deserve her. I've, I've found that's a prominent thing with most men. Jonah returned to Compiègne when she re realized that she, the city she'd grown fond of was under siege. She snuck into the city on May 23rd under darkness, and her troops were quickly outflanked and forced to retreat. She fell off her horse and was soon captured. Joan was constantly being moved from prison to prison as she was under the authority of the Duke of Burgundy now, and even potentially might have been shipped to England for a trial on heresy. Some say the trial took place in France, some say England. It was a fairly well-documented trial, too, both because of her publicity and because this was a huge moment to exercise not only the authority of the church, but the authority of the English and try to break the spirits of the French. Joan was not having it. Her treatment was brutal, even suggesting assault, and she was so desperate to escape that she even would jump out windows, surviving her fall in the tower and was recaptured again. Joan was declared a heretic and was interrogated for several weeks, including torture and long, long hours of questioning. Her trial took place for two full days solely just to assess the 70 charges against her, only 12 of which stuck, most of them relating to her visions and wearing men's clothing. Charles and Yolande made no attempts to save her. Joan soon fell ill and was eventually burned at the stake, declared a heretic. Her last words were reportedly crying out the word, Jesus. Some reports do have her death in England and others in England, English-occupied France. We do know for sure that she died on May 30th, 1431. That's just sad. I feel like we remember Joan of Arc today as this paragon of power and authority, probably one of the main reasons that France is still a country today. But in all seriousness, she had a very small but impactful influence in this huge and overwhelming conflict. Joan of Arc was eventually canonized on May 16, 1920, in St. Peter's Basilica, Rome, by Pope Benedict. But most people think she was canonized as a kind of rebirth of French Catholicism. But she did apparently have some miracles, including once on one of her campaigns, the, she changed the wind in the sails, switching directions to carry her and her troops to Orleans most famous and decisive victory. Between that and the visions, it's fairly hard to deny, unless of course you're a skeptic, or think that she was just doing it to rally troops, that she did have some pretty miraculous qualities. Though the war continued for another 22 years after her death, Joan of Arc changed the tide in the Hundred Years Conflict. She led armies to victory, crowning a king, and reawakened French patriotism and identity stirring the people to get rally around Charles and declare him their king. She is a paragon of female empowerment, and thank goodness her story has survived. Mostly because it was so well documented because everyone thought she was a heretic, but it survived nonetheless. 
There are plenty of incredible women like Isabella and Yolande and Eleanor Rakutoyin, even, who we briefly mentioned today, whose stories are so much further in the background. I think what we can take from Joan is the power of concise decisions, faith, and the importance of keeping these kinds of stories alive. We're wrapping up today. I hope everyone has an amazing weekend. Please, dear God, get some sleep. And I will see you next week for another woman who made her story. ¶¶